These are the Greek Myth Files, your entree into the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Greek Myth Files, which we're calling The Uses of Greek Myth, Part 1. This is the second in our series, What Greek Myth Is and Is Not, where we ask and try and answer some basic questions about Greek myth. Today we're going right after the big question, what is Greek myth? Or rather, what do we mean when we use the term? And most importantly, how useful is it to attempt to corral this wide-ranging set of stories with a definition in the first place? This question is so big and so debated that I decided to ask some colleagues of mine who work on Greek myth to help us frame the questions and hopefully give us some answers. Or, if nothing else, a different perspective from mine. In our last episode, we gave a very basic idea of what a myth was, a traditional story about the gods and heroes of the past that was anonymous and transmitted at first orally, but later also in writing. This, of course, is a gross oversimplification that elides a number of other important questions, but it was useful for us to start with at least a preliminary definition. And to a large extent, that definition is vague enough so as not to box us into a corner when we actually look at what Greek myths do. Note that I said what Greek myths do, not what myths are. Because in my experience, when we try and be precise about the nature of myth, we end up failing to account for all the ways that stories from the Greek mythical story world are employed. In fact, the landscape of scholarly work on Greek myth is littered with the charred hulls and broken remains of attempts to define myth as this or that. And any hard and fast definition really does seem bound to fail, and so far always has, sometimes in spectacular fashion. Before we get into the big picture, I'd like to offer up three short stories, all taken from ancient sources, that show the range of Greek stories told of their gods and heroes. The first is the famous story of Daphne, whose name means laurel in ancient Greek. Daphne was the especially beautiful daughter of the river Ladon in Arcadia. Apollo fell in love with her, and in his desire to sleep with her, started chasing her. Just as the god was laying hands on her, they say that she prayed to her mother Gaia, the earth, to open up and receive her. After this happened and the earth yielded, Apollo saw a homonymous tree and was stunned. He named the tree Daphne, or Laurel, after the name of the maiden. He took one of the branches and wreathed himself. This myth involves a god and the metamorphosis of a woman into a tree, and it seeks to explain the reason why the laurel, Daphne in Greek, is Apollo's favorite tree and why it was used in his celebrations in religious festivals, for instance at Delphi, the home of his most famous oracle. It does more than that, but for now, let's move on to the next story. Our second story concerns the hero Theseus and his main challenge, the killing of the half-man, half-bull Minotaur. Theseus, son of Aegis, voluntarily put himself forward in the lottery to be one of the boys to sail to Crete to be set out as food for the Minotaur. When he got there, the daughter of King Minos, Ariadne, conceived a desire for him. So she gave him a ball of thread, 
which she had gotten from Daedalus, the builder of the labyrinth, and instructed him, when he entered, to tie the end of the thread to the door beam above, and to keep unwinding it as he went until he got to the center. And if he came upon the Minotaur while sleeping, he was to take hold of him by the hair of his head and sacrifice him to Poseidon. Then he would get back out by simply winding the thread once more. Theseus took Ariadne and put her on the ship, as well as the boys and girls who had not yet been put out as food for the Minotaur. After he did this, he sailed away in the middle of the night. Unlike the first, this story does not involve any divine action, but rather the attempt of a Greek hero to stop his people from having to send their boys and girls of marriageable age, say around 13 or so, to be consumed by the Minotaur each and every year. This story also does not have any astounding events like a woman turning into a tree, but like the earlier version, it involves boys and girls at the cusp of their transition into men and women. The words for boys and girls here actually describe unmarried young women at exactly that point of transition. But this event does have the ring of heroic legend, describing a sort of historical account of the past, the tension between Athens and Crete. And yet the Minotaur itself, with its hybrid form of half-man and half-bull, places us in a world very different from our own. For those keeping score at home, Theseus will desert Ariadne on an island on his way home, but don't worry, the god Dionysus will rescue her and make her his wife. Our third myth also involves Theseus, or rather his illegitimate son Hippolytus, who was born of him and an Amazon, one of the famed female warriors. After dumping Ariadne on the island, he somewhat improbably weds her sister named Phaedra and has a couple of kids with her. They live happily ever after until, well, here's the story. After Phaedra bore two sons, Ochimus and Demophon, to Theseus, she fell in love with the son he had with the Amazon and begged him to sleep with her. He hated all women and shrank from sleeping with her. Phaedra, afraid that he would tell his father, broke open the doors of her bedroom, ripped open her clothes, and made up a story that Hippolytus raped her. Theseus believed her and prayed to Poseidon that Hippolytus be destroyed. After her desire became public knowledge, she hanged herself. The story has elements of what is called the Potiphar's wife motif, named after the wife of the Pharaoh's guard in the Old Testament that accused Joseph of rape when he refused her advances, a storyline that is found in various cultures that obviously has to do with sexual norms, the dangers of transgressing them, and the power of a well-timed lie. But our story about Hippolytus does not have any events that are beyond human scope. No metamorphosis into a tree. No half-man, half-bull creature. No divine intervention, except that Poseidon will help bring an end to Hippolytus's life through Theseus's prayer. The story, set in the mythical world of the distant past, is entirely plausible in human terms. No divine intervention necessary. There is no scholar of Greek mythology that I know of who would deny that any of these stories should be classified as Greek myth. However, each of the stories told in the previous segment have been classified by earlier scholars as different types of stories. The story of Daphne as explaining the origin of laurel trees and their importance to the god Apollo's cult 
would be a myth because of its religious importance and divine agent. The story of the Minotaur would fall into the category of heroic legend or saga, and the story of Hippolytus and Phaedra would belong to the realm of folktale, a story that was aimed mainly for entertainment or moral instruction. To a great extent, these attempts to separate stories into different categories were motivated by trying to understand the origins of all the different stories that the Greeks told. Myths would be, as H.J. Rose put it, in his popular but now very outdated work from 1958, the result of the workings of a naive imagination on the facts of experience. In other words, an attempt to render an explanation, usually calling upon supernatural forces, for a natural event that science would later record the explanation. Many scholars in past centuries, in fact, attempted to restrict myths to specifically sacred stories that directly involve divine figures or explain the creation or workings of the natural world, a sort of proto-science before science became a thing. The idea, however, that myth is essentially the attempt of uncivilized savages trying to make sense out of the world without the tools of science and resorting to imaginative expressions has been roundly and, I think, rightly rejected. Heroic legend or saga, in turn, were stories about real historical figures, embellished as the tales were passed down from generation to generation. And finally, folktale would belong to a lesser category of story, one for amusement, neither trying to account for reality or historicity, a tale through and through. Speaking very generally, the thinking went like this. If we can categorize stories in this way, we can perhaps tease out which stories came from the confrontation with inexplicable natural phenomena, which contain kernels of real history, and which were just stories. In other words, to find out why the Greeks and other cultures came up with such spectacular stories of different kinds. Now, there's a lot in what I just reported that can and has been rejected, but two things in particular should be addressed here. First, when we try to subject specifically Greek myth to these categories, we often find very few stories easily fit into this or that category. In other words, they simply defy such sharp distinctions and often overlap, partly because they have been retold countless times before they were committed to writing. I want to stress this last point. Because these stories were told over and over for centuries and ultimately were combined together into a mega-mythical supersystem, it's almost always impossible for us to figure out what the original version of a story was in the first place. In other words, the search for the origins of myth and therefore their functions in that origin is often futile and completely speculative. This brings us to what I call the great tension in the study of Greek myth. We want to know why these stories were created in the first place, but they simply saw these stories as part of a cultural heritage, and the evidence for the original inception of a myth is often, and perhaps always, simply beyond our reach. What we have are what the Greeks chose to tell over and over, and out of that body we only have what happened to have been preserved for us in writing to study. For all these reasons, the origins of Greek myth are, in the words of one scholar, of great obscurity and little interest. Most importantly, though, they are simply beyond our ability to know. What is certain is that the Greeks themselves did not recognize these different categories of story. Nothing we have from them suggests that they thought about dividing up their stories into myths, folktales, and legends. 
Instead, these categories are what many modern scholars studying myth in Greek and other cultures settled on for categories. In fact, and this may throw you for a loop, there are some scholars who argue that myth itself was not an indigenous category among the ancient Greeks. In other words, on their reading, the Greeks would not have really understood what we mean by Greek myth, and that that concept was really conceived of and created by modern scholars looking externally at the stories told by the ancient Greeks. To help us think through this a bit more, it may be helpful to use two terms from anthropology, the study of humans. If one wanted to learn about indigenous peoples in Australia, we could do one of two things. First, we could observe them from the outside and describe their actions based on our own cultural expectations. That is what a lot of earlier anthropologists did and is today called an etic perspective. That's E-T-I-C, etic. Alternatively, we could ask what the people themselves think about their social realities and consider their categories and ways of thinking that they themselves had. That's an emic, E-M-I-C, emic perspective, and it often results in different conclusions. If we extend this to storytelling, from an edict perspective, we might say that the Greeks told myths based on their own categories, but the Greeks themselves, with their emic or insider perspective, might not talk about their stories in those same terms. If our category does not match up with theirs, the question then becomes, are we justified in discussing their stories by imposing our categories of thought on them? Now, I disagree entirely with the idea that the Greeks never had a self-recognized category of myth. I believe they did. Well, actually, let me clarify it a bit. It's pretty clear that the Greeks eventually came to consider the stories of the distant past as a category different from other forms of narrative, such as history and philosophy. But they certainly did not start out with such a concept when they told stories that simply came naturally to them in the earliest periods. In fact, one of the outgrowths of the attempt of later Greek thinkers to link the stories together and to organize them into a connected whole was to create a coherent system that could be seen as something entirely distinct. But don't take my word for it. My colleague, Dr. Greta Hawes of Canberra, Australia, feels similarly, though she frames it in slightly a different way. Now, I actually have no doubt that the Greeks recognized that there was a large group of stories that belonged conceptually together. They didn't always call these mythoi, um, and there's really no ancient definition of them that would satisfy our analytical minds. But nonetheless, they used these stories, and they used them every day. And in antiquity, context was key. When, for example, the Greeks produced tragedies or decorated temples or talked about the earliest generations of people, they drew almost invariably from a recognised repertoire. This wasn't the only kind of storytelling that the Greeks had. There was historical storytelling, for example, stories about the Persian Wars. But what I think that we can see is that they recognised that the stories of the distant past were essentially a category of their own. And this category of stories is what we would call, and precisely, of course, Greek myth. Um, so I guess my, my, my answer in some ways is that we can't necessarily define Greek myth, but we certainly recognize it when we see it. Now, since Dr. Hawes has been working on the subject her whole life, 
I thought I'd ask her to speak at more length on the matter. She is currently the Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow at the Australian National University. It's a fancy way of saying she's a big deal. And she is finishing up a book on the travel writer and myth buff Pausanias. In the past, she's written a very good book that we'll pitch in a later episode. But for the moment, we'll stick to the main point about what Greek myth is. Her responses to this question have been gently edited. If the question is, how would I define Greek myth? Then my first answer would essentially be that I wouldn't. Um, I don't like definitions. Um, I think they tend to bring up arguments over very marginal cases. So we stop looking at the material itself. We stop looking at what is gener- generally true of the material itself. And we spend all of our time trying to, to get the definition right. So I'm going to be difficult. And in place of a definition, I'm going to offer you some general observations of how I essentially approach this object of study. I always start with the idea that the need for stories is universal. We humans are storytelling animals. We make sense of the chaotic, often random world that we inhabit by essentially shaping things that happen into narratives. So stories are essentially how we communicate with each other. We use them to persuade each other, to bolster alliances, for example. Stories then are at the heart of the formation of a community, both because we we tell stories to each other and so we share them and we strengthen these communal ties, but also because we use stories to a conceptual sense of who belongs um, with us in our group and who should be pushed aside, who should be stigmatised essentially as an outsider. I actually think it's really important that we don't rarefy storytelling and assume that it's always a a natural and intrinsic good thing um, because, of course, storytelling can be used to bolster um, discord and, um, and, and discontent. Another distinguishing feature is that these myths all narrate aspects of a mythic story world. That is to say, a story world which exists on its own terms as a conceptual entity. And this is quite apart from the context in which these stories were told. Now, this story world has distinctive chronological dimensions. That is to say, it extends from, say, the beginning of the universe, that is to say, the Theogony, to sometime after the return of the Heraclids. It also has its own spatial dimensions. Um, It's roughly similar to the the landscape of the Mediterranean, um, but it has uh, all sorts of additions like the underworld and the palaces of 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 the gods on Olympus. Now, I genuinely mean that this is a world. That is to say, it is multidimensional. It can be viewed from many different angles. So we could, for example, set about writing a kind of history of it or drawing a map of it. We could describe it in in anthropological or sociological terms. We could analyse its biological underpinnings. So I'm genuinely saying that this is a world because it exists in a way as an independent entity. And it's continually, therefore, expandable. You can always add new characters, add new events, add new, new places. So while I'm saying that this is a full and coherent world, I'm not necessarily saying it's a consistent one. There's no expectation that things added to the story world will necessarily not conflict with things that already exist there. And that's one of the, another distinguishing feature of, of Greek myth. It is amazingly tolerant of plurality. These stories end up having certain features, and these certain features become almost intrinsically recognisable. So we can say that Greek myths often have a very particular story arc, 
That is to say, something happens, something happens in response, and then the story is somehow resolved. Um, so this is sort of the classical plot in a way. Equally, um, the Greek myths often have certain recurrent events. So often there's um, an emphasis on interfamily conflict, for example. Um, there are oracles, um, often gifts, very significant gifts are given. So there are these narrative features that often are shared amongst these stories. But also these stories assume particular social and economic arrangements around family dynamics, for example, and the hierarchy um, within, a, within, a, within a kingdom, for example. One of the things that we often find in myth are supernatural events, people turning into trees and such. I wonder if you can comment on whether or not that's necessary for us to consider it a myth. They also obviously have a different sense of what is normal. Things can happen in myth that cannot happen in everyday life. So they allow for the existence of monsters, of hybrids, of interactions with the gods, of people that turn into rocks, and all sorts of other bits and pieces. And that takes these stories well out of the everyday. Now that's not to say that every story, in order to be understood or in order to be observed as being mythic, must have one of these one of these strange and fabulous elements. That's not quite what I'm saying. We shouldn't have to decide whether any one particular story fits into some kind of definition in order for us to understand it as being part of Greek myth. Rather, it would be better to consider how the story would be understood according to broad categories. That is to say, what was the circumstances in which the story was told? Did it link up to the rest of the story world, i.e. was it relationally um, part of it? And was it told in a way which made it analogous to other kinds of stories told in those contexts and which belonged in that story world? It's also important to keep in mind that there are similar kinds of stories from other cultures, what we call Norse myth, Near Eastern myth, Egyptian myth, and that of the indigenous peoples of the United States, to name but a few. Now, it's attractive to think that somehow all myths from all cultures operate the same, as if there was something in the human psyche that naturally led to the production of such stories, or that primitive humans, in the absence of science, always tried to make sense out of the world through such mythical explanations. In terms of the former, one might immediately think of Carl Jung's archetypes of the collective unconscious, drawing on the legacy of Freud, whereby myths are projections of the human psyche. As Jung himself summarizes, in fact, the whole of mythology could be taken as a sort of projection of the collective unconscious. For him, myths were universal and demonstrate, as he puts it, the uniformity of psychic events in time and place. It is, of course, tempting to think that we're all in this together, but comparison of different stories in different cultures leads us to a different answer. G.S. Kirk, who was professor of Greek at the University of Bristol, argued forcefully against the idea that myth operates the same in different cultures. In 1970, he tried to show that the error of modern studies of myth involve, in his words, a false preconception that myth is a closed category, with the same characteristics in different cultures. The book from which that quotation is taken is entitled Myth, Its Meaning and Functions in Ancient and Other Cultures. And the reason I point that out is because of the use of the word functions, the plural, in its title. 
which in many ways is the fundamental point of this episode. Traditional stories do not have a single origin or single use, but can be employed in a number of ways, for a number of reasons, and in a number of different contexts. And a lot, perhaps everything, depends on the culture that tells the stories. In fact, in his opening pages, Kirk makes it clear that, to understand myth, it is less important to focus on defining myth as it is to explore the ways in which it is used. He says, and I quote, It is essential to have a clear idea of what myths are and what they are not, and, so far as possible, of the ways in which they are likely to operate. The ways in the plural. For I regard it as axiomatic that myths do not have a single form, or act according to one simple set of rules, either from epic to epic or from culture to culture. Again, Dr. Hawes has something to say about this as well. Once we've established that storytelling is something, is an activity that that we all do, it's crucial to distinguish this from what we might call myth. That is to say, the product of storytelling. Now, I don't think there's any point in trying to define myth in some kind of universal way. The very point is that the kinds of stories that a community or a culture creates and uses is unique to that culture or community. So we can only talk about myths in the context of a particular culture at a particular time. So another way of saying this is that we can make observations about the nature of Greek myth without assuming that these observations must hold for any other community or culture. That is to say, every cultural community will do something different with its storytelling and therefore will create different stories, different kinds of stories, but also create different categories of stories. Our next episode will feature an interview I did with Professor Ken Dowden who wrote a book called The Uses of Greek Myth, a title that offers insight into the varied nature of Greek myth and, as the title suggests, the ways in which the Greeks employed their traditional stories. Again, it seems much more productive to talk not about what Greek myth is, but rather what Greek myths do. Now, we've covered a lot today, and I'm sure it feels like we've made very little headway in defining myth, or even Greek myth, but I hope that you've seen that definitions can distract us from the real work of thinking about the fact that myth was very much a Swiss army knife, able to be used for different purposes, at different times, and with different cultural contexts. In short, I've argued here that we need to think about the uses, plural, of Greek myth more than pigeonhole it into a place it just does not fit. But even then, we can't just assume that all instances of a story are used in the same way. To wrap all this up, I thought I'd turn things over to my colleague at the University of New Hampshire, Stephen Trascoma, with whom I've had countless discussions about Greek myth. He's an expert not only in myth, but also in the ancient novel, which itself picks up narrative patterns used in myth for its own purposes. At any rate, I asked him to give me his definition of myth. Well, you know, you're asking one of the toughest questions about the subject. Um, my own view is that Kirk is definitely right to steer us away from the thought that we can come up with a perfectly satisfactory definition, not just of Greek myth, but of myth in general. The Greeks are peculiar. Our knowledge of their myths is also peculiar, how it comes to us and how long it's come to us. It's very different from the mythical traditions collected orally from many of the cultures around the world, although there are some analogous kinds of things. Even that broad definition of myth that you've mentioned, though, revolving around the notion 
of a traditional story. That can get us into trouble when it comes to the Greeks because it requires us to define what we mean by traditional, and that's actually quite hard. So while I do give my students that definition and I work from it as a starting place, I also make clear that there are a lot of problems with it. What it, we use alongside it in my courses is what I call Trascoma's hardcore porn definition of myth, quoting U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's famous pronouncement in Jacob Ellis v. Ohio, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description, and perhaps I never could succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it. And he was talking about hardcore pornography. I'm talking about Greek myth. But my own guide for knowing what it is, is to follow as much as I can the Greeks' emic categories to the extent that we can. If they seem to accept a story as belonging to the broad category of myth, then who am I to argue with them? And what's clear is that some of the stories at different times to different Greeks might sometimes be on one side of that line and at other times on the other. It's never going to be simple, but for the majority of what we and the Greeks think of as myth, it is. So we can know it when we see it. But following Kirk and concentrating on functions can be tricky as well. It's interesting and it's useful, and it's better to do that than to get stuck on trying to find a perfect definition of Greek myth or myth. However, there's nothing that requires a myth to function in particular ways across all the time and the space and the intellectual tradition that a phrase like the ancient Greeks covers. And even in roughly the same time and place, a myth might be used by two different people in radically divergent ways, that is for different functions. And it's hard to conceive of a function for a myth that could not also to some extent be found as a mode of operation and meaning making for stories that aren't myths. In other words, even if we find a myth or multiple myths performing some function, it doesn't necessarily follow that any story that performs a roughly analogous function in that society would also have to be a myth. As you'll note, all the scholars who have commented here today have their own take on the subject, and that's how good scholarship works, in dialogue, working together to get to the truth. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Greek Myth Files. Great thanks go to the students of the University of New Hampshire who contributed to the project, including our fabulous sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia, who was also one of our voice actors, alongside A.J. O'Neill and Julia Summer. Our theme music, as always, is Brooklyn Tea by Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go buy his music. As always, I'm your host, Scott Smith, signing off for just a little while. See you next time 